You can turn in your Bibles, please, to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 8. You've got a pew Bible. You will find it on page number 1781. 1781. Second Corinthians chapter 8. This is the word of God. Reading from verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first give themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete his grace in you as well. But as you abound it in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Amen. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. My friends, let that sink in. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. I am sure the numerous stories that abound of dignitaries and people of status exchanging their nobility, royal robes, or wealthy dress for rags or for a more common dress code in order to walk among and help the less well-off. Those stories, by and large, are apocryphal. It's reported that Queen Victoria and other Victorian politicians actually did this. It's reported that the late Princess Diana uh, also did it around Kensington. In a similar vein, a wonderful story was told many years ago about a Persian monarch who lived in great splendor and magnificence. 
Nonetheless, in the middle of all of that wealth and prosperity, he had a heart for people who were poor and common. And so he decided that he would dress himself as a poor man and that he would descend from the lofty heights of his majesty and splendor down to the commonest man that he could find and try to make a friend out of him. And such a man was a man whose job it was to stoke the fires in the basement of the palace, put fire in containers and then place them around the palace in order to keep people warm. He worked night and day in that environment of ashes and soot and smoke and filth way, way down in the basement. And the king who had put on garments of a poor man descended the dark, damp cellar stairs and came down to where the man was seated in a pile of ashes. The king sat down beside him, dressed in rags, and began to converse with the man. At mealtime, the man produced some coarse black bread and a little bit of water. They sat and ate, and they drank together. The king then went away, but he came back day after day because his heart was filled with sympathy for this poor man. The king's longing was just to be there to share a little bit of the man's common and difficult life. The king gave the man sweet counsel from his wisdom and experience. And this poor man opened his whole heart Uh, to this stranger who had befriended him, loved his friend, so kind, so wise, and as he thought, so poor like himself. At last the king thought, you know, I can't keep this up. I have to tell him who I really am. And so the king decided, I'll tell him and I'll ask him, now that we're friends, what gift would he like from me? And so the king, on the next visit, said, you know, you think I'm poor like yourself, but I'm not. He says, actually, I'm your king, I'm your emperor. What would you like from me? And he expected the man to petition him for some great thing, but the poor man just simply sat amazed. Gazing in wonder and love. The king said, have you understood what I've told you? I can make you rich. I can make you noble. I can give you a city. I can give you several cities. Give you anything. What do you want? According to the story, the man replied, yes, my king, I understand. But what is this that you have done? To leave your palace, your magnificence, your glory. To sit with me in this dark place to partake of my coarse bread. To really care whether my heart is glad or sorry. Even you can do nothing more precious than that. Indeed. And others you may bestow rich presents. Nobility and cities. 
but to me. You have given you have given me yourself. And it only remains for me to ask one thing. And that is that you never withdraw your friendship. Well, beloved, that lovely story is analogous, it's parabolic to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't it just what Jesus did? A king, a king that we have been singing about who came down to dwell among common men to give his life and his friendship and indeed his life a ransom for sinners. That thing is stated in verse 9 in the most simple and profound words. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Here in this very ethical, very practical section of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul is talking about giving uh, financial aid to support the uh, saints, that is the believers in Jerusalem, Right in the middle of this very practical section is tucked this very profound doctrinal verse. In fact, it is very much like 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, just a few uh, chapters back, where it's a a similar uh, profound statement. Maybe the profoundest statement of all statements ever made concerning the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, is just dropped in as a a gem. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin. My friends, listen up. There is only one person who fits the profile There is only one person who ever lived who knew no sin. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And here a few chapters further on in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Is another one of those Christological gems. A diamond outshining all the other jewels around it. The wonder of this verse is captivating. Its vastness, its profundity, its reality, its impact certainly transcends with infinite glory the simplicity of the words. For you know the grace Of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich. Yet for your sakes. He became poor. That you through his poverty. Might become rich. 30 words. In our English translation. 21 words in Greek. And they embrace eternity. And time. And eternity again. 
21 words in Greek, and when translated into English, even a child can understand them. There are no difficult words here. There are no confusing words. There aren't really any theological words. And though it can be easily grasped as to its simple, straightforward meaning, the fullness of what it says is incomprehensible. With one reading, you may understand what it says. But with an eternity, you will never understand all that it involves. It's a blazing diamond of truth. And we're going to be looking at it over the next month or so. And you say, Billy, why so long? Well, because we don't want to miss anything, do we? This is the story of Christ from riches to poverty. This is the story of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ from poverty to riches. Christ is here in this verse revealed and beloved, so are we. Paul, as we saw last week, putting this verse in context. And for those of you who were here last week, just bear with us while we um, recap for those who um, weren't here. Uh, But Paul is addressing the Corinthians on the subject of of giving. Specifically, as he traveled on his missionary journeys, he asked the Gentile churches to take up an offering of money that could be sent back to the poor saints in Jerusalem. When he's talking about saints in Jerusalem, he's simply talking about people who have recognized that they are sinners and that they have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have repented of their sin and they're born again. The Jerusalem church was very poor. Why was it poor? Because many of the people in the church in Jerusalem were pilgrims who had been visiting the city during the time of uh, Jewish feasts, they had heard the gospel preached about the Messiah, the Messiah who was to come, had come, Jesus Christ, who had gone to the cross and died, but rose again the third day. And they were calling people to repent of their sins, and many of those uh, pilgrims listened to that message, were convicted of their sin, repented, were baptized, And they stayed in Jerusalem. They never went back home. They had no jobs, no houses, no livelihood. And so those poor people, those pilgrims who stayed, had to be uh, cared for by the Jerusalem Christians. Jerusalem Christians had a problem. Because once they had identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of their sin and been baptized, they lost their jobs. They were put out of their families. They were disinherited. And therefore they were poor as well. So the poverty of the Jerusalem church was widespread. Most of the people were very poor. And very early on within the life of the early church, the people who did have money sold what they had. They they took the money, they gave it to the poor. And 
They were not resources that could be replenished. And so many had become impoverished in that very process. Now, in order to meet the needs of these poor saints in Jerusalem, Paul was collecting money from all the other Gentile churches, including this church in Corinth. Now, according to what we read in verse 6, and what we see in verses 10 and 11, the believers in this church had already begun to give. They were the first to give. They started about a year before this letter was actually uh, written. But their giving, their giving had tailed off. They didn't finish their giving. And so in verse 10 of this chapter, Paul reminds them that they had begun to give. And then in verse 11, he says, you know, you need to finish it. Uh, you need to uh, stop slacking off. And he tells them how to give. Back in the first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul had given them a plan for giving. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 16, now concerning the offering or the collection for saints. Verse 2, on the first day of the week, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper so that there be no collection when I come. Do it weekly, he says. I said last week, that's why we take up a weekly offering. During the weekly service, when you come together for worship, you take up a collection, set it aside so that when I come, I'll be able to take it and get it to the uh, folks in Jerusalem. They had apparently, the Corinthians, they had apparently begun to do that, but they hadn't continued. And in this second letter, Paul is encouraging them to continue to give. Now, to stimulate them as to how to give, and remember, giving is whatever you want, whenever you want. The amount is not prescribed. That's from the heart. That's what free will giving is all about. But to stimulate them to be generous, in the first eight verses of this chapter, he draws their attention to churches in Macedonia. In the first one, he shows them what the churches of Macedonia have been doing. Now, the churches in Macedonia were Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. And he, Paul doesn't talk about amounts. He talks about attitudes. And in the first eight verses, he shows the generosity of the Macedonian churches. Now, we went through those eight verses last week. We noted the giving of the Macedonian churches was initiated by grace. Their giving transcended their difficult circumstances. In other words, they weren't hindered by their difficulties, uh, their own economic deprivation, the persecutions that they were facing. They were giving joyfully. Their giving was out of their poverty, even though they had little they give much. Their giving was generous, proportionate, sacrificial, and voluntary. Giving was viewed by them as privilege, not obligation. They were eager and insisted. 
that they give. Their giving was an act of worship. It was an act of submission to their pastors. It was consistent with other virtues because giving never ever comes in a vacuum. Firstly, it says their giving was evidenced by the sincerity of their love. They really did love the Lord. They really did love the the saints, the household of faith. And this was manifested in the generosity of their giving. So Paul endeavors to stimulate the giving of the Corinthians by showing them, drawing upon the example of the Macedonians, people who were just like them. He's saying you ought to give the way the Macedonians give. They show their love in their giving. You need to manifest your giving the way they did. But as he thinks about that, he thinks about how that love manifests itself in giving. And so his mind goes immediately to the greatest love and the greatest gift of all that involves the Lord Jesus Christ. When you talk about love, you have to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. When you talk about love that gives, no example is better or greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had been speaking about Macedonian churches, using them as a human model to spur the saints at Corinth into giving. And here in verse 9, Paul goes way beyond the Macedonians. He goes way beyond that to the most generous, the most gracious, the most momentous give of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. If love gives, this is the greatest love because this is the greatest gift, God's gift of Christ is the, ex, ex, is the, ex, the supreme example of giving. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. It's the supreme gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will never perish, but have everlasting life. It's the supreme example of giving. And Paul says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus wanted to make us rich. We're not talking about anything as mundane or transitory as material riches, those things that are passing. Talking about those things that make us truly rich, spiritually rich, eternally rich. Those things which last. 
Those are the things that are important. And in order to make us spiritually rich, eternally rich, Jesus had to make himself what? He had to make himself poor. My friends, that's magnanimous. That's generous. You know, rich people do help poor people. We know that. But rarely, if ever, do rich people make themselves poor in the helping. Rich people give out of their riches, but they do not impoverish themselves in the process. They normally give, and they are none the poorer for the giving. But the Lord Jesus Christ became poor, that we might be made rich. Verse 9, he begins by saying, For you know. And the word for links us up with the prior verse. Verse 8. Verse 8 says, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. In other words, I don't need to command you to do this because for you know, you know how Christ give. I don't need to command you to give graciously. You have an example that supersedes any command that I could ever give. Rather than doing it because I, an apostle, command it. No, you do it because you see it illustrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the giving of Jesus provides a greater incentive and motivation than any command that the apostle Paul could ever give. You know, he says, you are not ignorant about the giving of Christ. You know, you couldn't be a Christian. You couldn't be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and be ignorant about that. You couldn't be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ without knowing that Jesus came down from heaven and gave his life. Every one of us knows that. That's the the gospel. That's what we all know, that he was rich, the God of glory. We all know that he became poor in order that we might be made rich. That's not beyond our knowledge. Friends, that should be the single greatest motivation in giving, even more motivating than the model of the Macedonian churches that he used earlier in the chapter. Though the giving of the Macedonians teaches us much about how to give the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and his magnanimous self-giving is the supreme example. This giving eclipses all other giving. Paul had basically said in verse 8 that love expresses itself in generous giving. And Christ, he says in verse 9, is the single 
greatest example of that. And, or for, you know it. Because everybody who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ knows it. Everybody who knows the gospel knows it. Everybody who knows Christ knows his self-giving. That's at the heart of the gospel. Now, notice that he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he identifies the giving that Christ did as grace giving. And I simply remind you that all free will giving is grace giving. It's not duty. It's not obligation. It's not a fixed percentage. It's not a tithe. It's not an amount. It's a spontaneous giving from whatever is in the heart. It's grace giving. Not compelled. Not grudging. Not of necessity. But simply because we will to give. And that's how Christ gave. Christ gave purely out of love. Purely out of mercy. Purely out of grace. Purely out of kindness. Purely out of compassion. It was unmerited, spontaneous kindness to undeserving sinners. Coming from pure and influenced love. And it's the action of the Saviour. That defines grace giving at its highest. So, as the Apostle Paul has this thought, he stops the flow of writing about the giving of the Macedonians and applying that to the Corinthians. He bursts out with this greatest example of giving. In verse 9, he goes way beyond anything the Macedonians or any other people could do to, to this most momentous gift and the giver of all, his infinite, God's infinite gift to us in the person of his Son. Makes us infinitely rich. Now he says, For you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now just note, he uses the full name of the incarnate God. Lord Jesus Christ. The name to which he was entitled by his person and by his perfect work. He is Lord He was given that name fully because he had accomplished the work that was given him to do by his father. It's a name that is above every name. We are told that in Philippians chapter 2. That he has a name that is above every name. And before that name every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so everyone in this little chapel and everyone outside of this little chapel, everyone in the surrounding area and surrounding areas, everyone in this globe who has ever lived, 
And all the dead who have died in millennia past, all will be raised. And they will stand before this king. And they will confess him as Lord to the glory of the Father. For those of us who are saved, it will be a delight. For those who are not saved, it will be a confession of terror because they know what will come after that eternal damnation. And that's the reality of it. Heaven and hell are always in the balance when we're preaching. Lord Jesus Christ, he was Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. What did the angel say at his birth? You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. He is Christ. He is the anointed Messiah. He is the king. He was the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. Beginning at Genesis. All the way through. A deliverer is coming. A Messiah is coming. A king is coming. Who will rescue you from your sin. Who will redeem you. And he has come. In Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you know the giving of Christ. He gave his life for you. It's common knowledge to all believers. Give his life because he who was sinless on the cross takes our sin and the punishment that we deserved in order that we can receive forgiveness and peace with God. And Paul describes it here in simple terms, doesn't he? He was rich, he became poor, that you might become rich. Now we'll get to those three truths eventually. I may or may not get to them by the 21st of April. Last week, I give you the context of the first. This week... I have simply given you an overture of the first. In coming weeks, we'll develop the symphony, starting with grace. For you know the grace. Music analogy falls flat because what symphony is made up of four movements. This won't be conducted over four parts or four movements. There's so, so much that will have to be left out, I guess. You know, when I, look, when I looked at this first, I think it was last January at the ladies' meeting, I said to the ladies when I read the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I said, and the ladies who were there will remember this, I guess. I said, boy, I could spend months in this. And and it was Joyce afterwards encouraged me. She said, do it. So you can blame Joyce. We'll look at grace. We'll look at Lord. We'll look at Jesus. Look at Christ. Might take Jesus Christ, depending on how time's going. And those three great truths, he was rich, he became poor, that we might 
become rich. And so grace next week, and this is what I mean about having to leave so much out, you know, there's what we call the doctrines, the teachings of grace, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement or particular redemption, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. It's a minimum of five weeks alone. And the argument is grace, resistible or, or irresistible. That's another couple of weeks, isn't it? There's common grace, saving grace, empowering grace, amazing grace, there's outrageous grace. God is the God of all grace. Next week, I'll just give you a broad outline of the picture. And whoever comes next will color it in for you. We as believers, we live in the realm of grace. We love the law of God. But we know we cannot be saved by keeping it. <coughs> Condemns us. <laughs> but this is the wonder of grace. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's what it means to be in the realm of grace. To stand before God, not fearing his just wrath or his judgment. To know you're at peace with God. To know your sins are forgiven. To know that you will hear from the creator God, come inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. It's all because of grace. We're getting what we don't deserve. And you see, friends, there is no theme that is more important than this. There is no theme that is more magnificent than this. There is no theme that is more instructive, instructive than this. No theme that is more a contributor to our gratitude, to our thankfulness, than this theme of grace. This each week we gather to worship. And incorporated in that worship is an expression of our thankfulness to God. And it's never a meager, mundane kind of thanks. We certainly believe it's appropriate to thank God for temporal mercies. You know, things that our Puritan forefathers thank God for, for food, for family, for health, for life. The beauties of creation. Beloved, by God's grace in coming weeks, we will gather here with a much larger and grander view on the agenda. A theme that was equally taken up by our Puritan forefathers. Saturated their preaching and their writings. We want to be taken up with the glories of the glorious one of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're a believer, please pray in coming weeks that that will be the case, that we will be taken up with Christ and all his glory. Amen.